Welcome to the first podcast from the Journal of Medical Ethics. My name is David Edmonds, and in this edition I spoke to Professor Jeff McMahon about the ethics of infanticide. Maybe we should start with what a definition of infanticide is. What, what is your definition? I would say that uh, infanticide involves the killing of a newborn infant. The lower bound to infanticide is, of course, birth. It's a matter of, I think, some indeterminacy what the upper bound would be. That's a conceptual issue. It's not clear that anybody has a real answer to that. More important would be morally, when would those people who think that infanticide can in some instances be permissible think that it more or less ceases to be permissible? And I think most of those people would say fairly early on after birth. The term infanticide is generally used to apply only to instances of killing rather than to letting infants die, which is another matter, and we may come back to that if you'd like. Now, most people out there, non-philosophers anyway, think that all cases of infanticide are morally wrong. Is that your position? No, that's not my position. I'm one of the people who thinks that infanticide can be permissible in certain cases, usually quite rare. There has to be a significant positive justification for it, and it's rather difficult to find that. But as I'll suggest, there are a number of reasons for thinking that infanticide can be permissible in some cases. Do you think there's a moral difference between infanticide and abortion? One difference, of course, is that once an infant is born, people form attachments to it, and fairly shortly it begins to form attachments to others, so there are considerations of special relations that arise in the case of infanticide that count against it. There's also, and I think even more importantly, the fact that there are fewer good reasons for practicing infanticide than there are for having an abortion. A fetus imposes a burden uniquely on one person by being inside a pregnant woman's body, perhaps imposing significant burdens on her, threatening her health, threatening her life in some rare cases, and so on. An infant may impose burdens on people by virtue of its needs and so on. But these burdens can be divided among people so that they don't uniquely burden any one person. And once an infant is born, in many cases it can uh, be put up for adoption, and there will be people who, in many cases, who will want to have the child. So, as I say, there are quite a bit fewer reasons why one would want to engage in infanticide, and those reasons are generally weaker than the reasons are for having an abortion. But people have really powerful intuitions that infanticide is wrong. Yes, they do. And in fact, those philosophers who argue for the idea that infanticide can in some cases be permissible generally tend to share these strong intuitions. I I myself do. I have an intuitive repugnance to the idea that infanticide could be permissible. I am intuitively repelled by the thought of killing an infant. I think most other philosophers who argue the way I do feel the same. But we also think that these intuitions in particular are not terribly reliable. And one of the reasons why we think that is that people's intuitions generally about the moral status of infants are not entirely consistent. We, for example, are comfortable, by and large, most people are, with a practice known as selective non-treatment of infants. That means that some infants that are recognized as badly impaired are intentionally allowed to die with the consent of the physicians and the parents. This is a practice that is reasonably widespread. The decision is made 
not to treat an infant in certain ways that could extend its life. And the reason for that is that people believe that it's better that the infant should die. Most of those cases, I think, are not genuine cases of euthanasia. Although people may comfort themselves by saying this is for the sake of the baby, in most of those cases it's not. In most of the cases, the infant could have a life that would be worth living. Really, the motivating reason behind allowing these babies to die is that it is recognized that they would be a terrible burden on the parents and a very expensive burden on the rest of society, and so they are allowed to die. Now, I'm one of the people who recognizes that in many cases there is an important moral difference between killing and letting die. However, I think in this particular kind of case, that distinction makes very little difference, if any, morally. So again, I think this is a case where people's intuitions are challenged by problems of consistency. How do we make it consistent to believe both that killing an infant is always wrong but intentionally allowing an infant to die because we want it dead rather than to continue to live is permissible and acceptable. But a great swathe of people think that abortion is acceptable. And as I suggested, very, very few think that infanticide is acceptable. So is it easy to draw that sharp distinction? No, it's not easy to draw that sharp distinction at all. In fact, it's uh, really almost quite impossible to draw that distinction. And the reason for that is that one and the same individual could be either a fetus or an infant over a period of about four months, which is a, quite a long time. We're talking about here the period between the onset of fetal viability and the normal time of birth. As it is now, fetuses become viable in principle shortly after five months from conception, and pregnancy can sometimes be delayed beyond nine months, so there's a, about a four-month period in which a fetus could be an infant if it were born prematurely. So the distinction between a fetus and an infant is really just one of, of geography during that period. And if you think that the objection to killing has to do either with the harm that would be caused to the individual who's killed, or if you think that it's a matter of the moral status of the individual, then there really can't be any difference morally between a fetus and an infant. So anyone who approves of abortion in any case after the point of fetal viability should in principle be open to the possibility of infanticide because it's one and the same individual at exactly the same time. There are no intrinsic differences between the fetus and the infant after that point. The only difference is what the reasons might be for engaging in killing. And you mentioned two possible reasons there. You said that you might be doing harm both to the fetus and to the infant and both the fetus and the infant might have a moral status. Let's take both of those in turn. People say that if you kill a fetus or if you kill a very small baby, you're harming that baby or that fetus because you're destroying their whole life and all their future interests. Yes, this is one of the strongest uh, anti-abortion arguments. What some people point out is that when a fetus is killed, if the fetus is one in the same individual as the later person, that fetus is then deprived of virtually the whole of a human life. And this is the most common analysis of why death is bad for people like you and me. Namely, it deprives us of our futures, our future lives, which would be of enormous value to us. Our future lives would contain a great deal of good that would be within our lives. And we lose all of that when we die and therefore when we're killed. Fetuses lose more than adults do. Is this a good argument? Well, it seems to me that most of us don't believe that the death of 
a fetus is as bad for the fetus or as tragic as the death of an older child or an adult. We don't think, for example, that an early spontaneous abortion is a great tragedy. If it were, we should reorganize our medical priorities quite a lot. We spend a lot of money on cancer research. Cancer generally kills old people. But about two-thirds of human conceptions result in spontaneous abortion. So the vast numbers of human beings who die prenatally, but we don't devote any social resources really to trying to prevent those deaths, which I think shows that we don't think that the early death of a fetus is a, is a great harm or a great tragedy or a great misfortune for the victim. Maybe we should alter our medical priorities then. Well, I don't think that that would be reasonable. This seems to me to be a rational intuition, namely that the death of a fetus is less bad for the fetus than the death of a person is for the person. And the reason is that fetuses are very distantly psychologically connected to themselves in the future. They are not self-conscious. They don't anticipate their future lives. They can't contemplate their future. They have no desires for the future. They have no intentions for the future. They have no plans, ambitions that might be frustrated by their dying. If they grow to be adults, they'll have no memory of their life as a fetus and so on. So there's this complete psychological separation between the fetus and itself later in life. And I think that diminishes the extent to which death is bad for the fetus at the time that it dies. So this is a sort of John Locke view of identity, that we're not the same as the fetus because we have no continuity of consciousness. Well, it's not strictly Locke's view, and because my own view is that we actually begin to exist when the fetal brain acquires the capacity for consciousness and mental activity. So there was a time when I existed as a fetus, I think. But at that point, I had very little... My interest in continuing to live was quite weak, not my sort of subjective interest, that is how much I cared about it, because I didn't care about it at all, but my interest in continuing to live in the sense of saying that I, I have an interest in or I have a stake in continuing to live, I think it was quite weak at that point, precisely because of the extreme psychological separation between myself then and myself now. And earlier you mentioned moral status or moral status. There's a view about human rights that all humans once they're born, have certain rights. One right is the right not to be killed. Yes, uh, I think it would be very difficult to explain to anybody why that right arises only at birth, given that birth is just a change of location. So if an infant has the right not to be killed, the right to life or whatever, the same should be true of the fetus at least at any point after we begin to exist. Now, people have different views about when we begin to exist. I think most people believe we begin to exist at conception. Other people believe that we begin to exist later in pregnancy, for example, when there's significant cell differentiation or when there's enough activity in the fetal brain to exclude a diagnosis of brain death or, my view, when the fetal brain acquires the capacity for consciousness and mental activity. So a lot depends, really, I think, on when we begin to exist. But on most views, we begin to exist before birth. And nothing particularly important happens at birth. So if you think that I had the right not to be killed from the moment that I began to exist and that that right has been as strong at every moment when I have existed, then on these different views about when we begin to exist, I had the right not to be killed perhaps very early in pregnancy, perhaps halfway through pregnancy, perhaps two-thirds of the way through pregnancy, something like that, whenever I began to exist. But it's not a right that arises at birth. So either fetuses have it at some point, and infants do as well, or fetuses don't have it, and newborn infants don't either. 
I guess a religious believer could argue that somehow the soul enters the body at birth. Yeah, I think that would be an odd position even for a religious believer. Um, religious believers tend to believe that the human organism begins to exist at conception and the soul informs the body from that point on. I think these views are very difficult to understand and to reconcile with what we know about the relevant science of embryology and so on. It's also really very hard to believe, I think, that there would be nothing bad at all about preventing a sperm cell from entering an egg cell and distributing some chromosomes into the egg cell, but a horrible crime and one of the most tragic events if immediately after the sperm had entered the egg cell and distributed some chromosomes, the resulting zygote were killed. From what we know scientifically, nothing of any moral significance happens over that short period during which a sperm distributes some chromosomes into an egg, and you get what I guess we would all concede to be a new living entity, but it doesn't seem like anything of any great moral significance happens at that point. The objections to killing a fetus or killing a newborn infant are not of exactly the same kind or of the same strength as the reasons we have for not killing older children and adults, and therefore the reasons not to kill fetuses and infants can be more easily overridden by countervailing considerations. So give me a kind of example where it would be overridden. Well, take the following case that's mentioned by Peter Singer in one of his earlier books. There was a woman who was pregnant, and she was told that her fetus was badly impaired in various ways, both mentally and physically, and the doctors advised her that an abortion would be appropriate in, in these conditions. She wanted to talk about it with her husband. They went away to think it over. And they had made the decision that they would have the abortion, but then in the middle of the night following her having got this information and made this decision, she went into labor and the baby was born spontaneously in this way. And then there was nothing they could do about it because now that the individual was outside of her body, it was infanticide rather than abortion. If the, if the baby had stayed inside her body, she would have been able to have an abortion and nobody would have thought that there was anything wrong. And what happened was what the doctors predicted. The baby lingered in a lot of pain for a number of months at enormous expense and great grief and heartbreak to the parents and then died. And this woman wrote a book about this, and she was rather bitter that this terrible tragedy was imposed on her by this really quite arbitrary distinction between whether the, this individual was inside her body or outside of her body. That would be a case in which one would think that uh, if abortion had been justifiable in that case, then infanticide would have been justifiable 10 or 12 hours later. These arguments are fascinating, and they're very compelling. But you're a moral philosopher in the United States. Abortion is legal there. There isn't a hope in hell that infanticide is ever going to be legalized. What is the point of these arguments? Well, I think that eventually we will see changes in the way we think about these things of the same sort that we saw in the case of fetuses, that we saw even in the case of women and black people and homosexuals. 
A hundred years ago, the rights that we all in the United States now recognize that women have were not recognized. The rights that most of us recognize that gay people have were not recognized. Abortion was illegal and generally disapproved of right up until 1973 with Roe versus Wade. And so it's not as if people's views can't change. Another example would be animal rights. Many people's views about what it's permissible to do to animals today are quite different from what they were 50 years ago. Of course, these are all changes in the direction of recognizing greater rights for individuals, most of them anyway, but it goes the other way. So now we recognize fewer rights in the case of fetuses. And I think we're quite right to do that, that that's a form of moral evolution as well, a form of moral progress, that we have realized that the mere fact that a living entity is a member of the human species doesn't automatically mean that it has all the rights that an adult person has. I do think that we face this challenge of making our common views about abortion consistent with our common views about infanticide. Jeff McMahon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Jeff McMahon for taking part in that podcast. If you want to find out more about the Journal for Medical Ethics, go to the JME website. That's jme.bmj.com.